0: Welcome to Breaking News with Ben Hunt, Jack Forehand, and Matt Ziegler. Before we start, let me remind you what the show is not. Breaking News is not a show about fact-checking. Breaking News is not a show about saying whose bias is the one and only correct bias. And Breaking News is definitely not a show about calling out fake news. Breaking News is a show where we look at today's top stories and have a conversation around our favorite critical question, why am I reading this now? Drawing on the headlines we're tracking at fiatnews.com, Join us as we talk about what's collectively making us tick with clear eyes, full hearts, and this obligatory disclaimer. Nothing in this podcast is advising you to buy or sell any security or to do anything with your money. Seriously, you should only act on investment advice from someone you know and someone who knows your unique situation. We are not that person. Just one more thing before we start. For anyone listening on the Epsilon Theory audio feed, We have also created a YouTube channel for the podcast. The channel can be accessed at youtube.com backslash at breakingnewspod. And we encourage you to subscribe if you would like to watch the episodes on video. Thank you. We appreciate it.
1: Welcome back to Breaking News. I'm Matt Ziegler. That's Ben Hunt and that's Jack Forehand. Hi, guys. Welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Good to be back. This is the optimism episode. I know... People have been asking for it. (laughs) We've all been crying for it, crying ourselves to sleep every night, looking for these signs of optimism. We're going to try to deliver them today because we see them. And that's part of doing the show is we actually see these as reasons for optimism, which is a beautiful thing. So we're better to start, Ben, than with you and the widening gyre. And I think just like, let's step back for a second. Let's talk about what is it? Why is it widening? And how did we get what we're all feeling? The cry for optimism is because we feel so far apart right now. So maybe just give us that. What's the widening gyre? Why is it widening? How did we get so far apart?
2: So I'll, I'll use an example that we've been, so we're recording this on, was today? October 6th. And yesterday, the House of Representatives voted out call him the speaker of the house, right? put him out of office, even though a supermajority within his own party and within the house overall, prefer Kevin McCarthy, that speaker. How does that happen? How does that happen? And the answer is, I think it's a microcosm of the widening gyre. The widening gyre effectively, this is the famous poem where the center does not hold. The center does not hold. We've been talking about this on a national sense about how political candidates in $10 word alert, bimodal distributions, they become more and more extreme. Either on the right or on the left to be successful within their own party, and that that hollows out the middle of the overall electorate. Well, guys, we saw exactly that happen with a much smaller group, the House of Representatives, where it took all of ten. I think it was ended up being ten Republicans out of two hundred and twenty. I think it is. some call it five percent less than 5%, to say, nope, we're going to put the whole situation into chaos. And it didn't have to go to chaos because the Democrats, well, they could have voted to keep the existing speaker and to keep some semblance of moving forward, and they had you know, just passed the budget resolution, and they want to get the Ukraine support bill, and, and all they've had. They could, have, they could have prevented all of this from happening, and they didn't. They didn't. They preferred to chaos, which I get. I'm not ascribing blame in this situation. We're just describing what is. You ask, what is the winding gyre? And it is self-interested individuals and organizations where their self-interest pushes them farther and farther from a common ground. Even though if you step back, a enormous majority, both in the House and in the overall electorate, prefer that common ground. So it's it's you see this a lot in social systems, you see it a lot in markets, you see it a lot in politics, where even though a strong supermajority may have a preference for a centrist outcome. The rules of the system prevent that centrist outcome from happening. And yes, there's was a great example, the rules of the system, whereby it only takes one angry Republican or Democrat, whoever you know, party is controlling the speakership to set this whole thing in motion. And once you set it in motion, the structural incentives push everyone apart. It's the same with our primary elections. It's the same with our general election today. And we saw it with the House of Representatives yesterday. So that now, there's the widening gyre in action. Nobody wanted that to occur. But the incentives, the structure, means that is what occurs. And and the question is, how do we break out of that? How do we break out of that? That's what we got to figure out. Yeah, it's interesting to me because it's
3: not just, you know, in in politics too, or like in the House of Representatives. I was noticing this is exactly what happens on Twitter too. The very, very loud minority wins. You know, the the majority of us who, you know, the person who says, let's look at both sides and let's analyze the issue, that, that tweet goes nowhere. And the people that are screaming and yelling on both sides, that goes to the top.
2: 100%, right? So it's, we live in this rage engagement world, particularly on social media. We've become a social media world where what these systems reward on individual level is engagement. Also rewards it on a corporate level. That's how Facebook makes money is your engagement. You can engage with something because you really like it. Oh, you know, the little kitten hanging by its claws in that cute, but so much more effective are other kinds of engagements. And, you know, we've written about two, one is called Mirror engagements and a mirror engagement is when you react very positively when a, I'm not gonna say famous, but a, a person with a big following says something that mirrors something you've always said. Yes, yes, go get them. Yes. I, that, that I've been saying that for years. You're absolutely right. Right. So a mirror engagement, even more powerful is the rage engagement. Where, and I get this all the time, right? People follow me and respond to me because I make them angry. Because I make the pain And that rush of, I'm going to, I'm going to deliver this, you know, terribly effective response to this person who I just don't like. That's an enormous brain chemical norepinephrine uh, releaser. Right? It's not dopamine. It's not the ah. Oh, it's the it's. Yes, I'm going to fight you. And this is what drives the economics of social media. Is increasing what drives I'll call it the political economy of voting. It all ends up with a widening gyre. Can you just put this
3: in the context? And we're, we're going to get to the positivity here in a second. Yes, but we really are. Just, we are, I promise. But in terms of history, I mean, where are yeah. we? Like, have we seen other periods like this? Is, is this potentially one of the worst periods? Like, how would you put this in the context of history?
2: So I used to be a political scientist of all oxymorons. And I, and I regret having the science part of that word. But you anyway, I I came from the background. I mean, there is science. There's game theory. It really is a science. There's real math right? We have the econometrics and statistics and real data analysis. So the hard part for measuring polarization is, well, we should go back 20 years ago. What are are you measuring? It's it's, um, you know, we don't have the same sort of media indicators and data on everything we did there, but we do have our voting records. So what you can track is how far apart Congress is in their voting records. Do you have bipartisan legislation? Do you have people in Congress who vote on, you know, with different majorities or is it like one side over here, one side over there, and that's all you got. We can absolutely track that. And what you see is that the polarization we see in legislation today is only matched by the polarization we saw in the 1930s, which was in fact the last time we had, I'll call it populist political movements, very much on the extreme, very much a widening gyre as well. The last time we were in a fourth turning to to refer to something we've talked about here and what was, it was very much up in the air in the 1930s about whether, let me tell you that, it wasn't up in the air. The the notion of conflict, violent conflict, being the end of this polarization was absolutely present in the 1930s, but people didn't think it would be us Americans fighting the Germans, the Japanese. No, it's that we'd be fighting ourselves, right? You had communists and fascists marching and fighting in the streets in the United States. Like Gantifa and you know, Proud Boys mixing it up, very similar dynamic. So has this happened before? Yes. Yeah, we we absolutely saw this clearly in the voting records in the the 1930s. You go back to the election of 1860 as another election that you know, like I'm we talked about last time, wasn't. I feel incredibly divisive and destructive for the country. It's a little bit different situation because you had the Democrats, they were split, there were the Northern Democrats and the Southern Democrats. They split the vote. Number three, Abe Lincoln, Republican comes in and wins the presidency. So it was a, and there was a fourth candidate as well. I forget his name, Knox, something like that, who I think won Missouri. But anyway, the, the point being is that it wasn't as solidified as a two-party system as we have today. Obviously you don't have the the media and the social media systems. You don't have the same personal incentives we're describing earlier, but those would be the examples in history. 1860 for an election that obviously divided the country and was enormously destructive, and then the 1930s for a period of time where our general politics uh, was also incredibly polarized where people really thought, well, I think the outcome here is, yeah, you know, domestic organized violence, as we obviously saw in 1860.
3: You mentioned the fourth turning, so I just wanted to pick up on that quick, because I think maybe what comes in the wake of that is is part of our reason for optimism, because if, I don't understand generational theory as well as you and Matt do, but I, I believe the first turning, which I think he calls mm-hmm. the high, is actually a, a very positive period. It's the most positive period of all of them. Um, so, I mean, is that a reason for optimism that, you know, We're going through some tough times now, but in the wake of this, we're going to have a more positive situation.
2: It's positive in the sense that it's better than the fourth turning. Right, because the fourth turning ends in violence. Period. End of story. It ends in violence. Sometimes that violence is domestic conflict. Sometimes that violence is international conflict. But it ends badly. It ends badly. Uh, So in that sense, the first turning is a reclaiming of identity, it is certainly better than the fourth turning. It is a bit of a rebirth of the cycle. But it's not all peaches and cream, right? So the the, the first turning, what comes out of the violence, whatever equilibrium, again, use those $10 words, whatever balancing point of individual incentives and structural rules, what comes out of the violence is a period of Great conformity, right? I mean, I can give you examples of a first turning. You know, it was a first turning with the aftermath of the Russian Revolution, <laughs> right? And and it's a first turning in the aftermath of the Chinese Revolution. Neither of those societies—Stalin's Russia, Mao's China. I think we would look at and say, woohoo, isn't that great? So I think it's a mistake to see, I'll say to think of what comes out of the conflict to come as necessarily great, right? Uh, But it has the potential to be great. And I think when we talk about how to maintain optimism, how are we to live our lives in a world that is falling apart, that is polarized, that is a widening gyre. How do we live our lives? What, that's one that's the, what we're talking about.
1: One of the pieces, and I think it's, it's actually, it's the how do we live our lives part, and the generational component of it that fascinated me by Howe's work, is even in those what we'll call like the negative scenarios of the, the less desirable turnings that we really hope we're not headed towards one of those is that, that he, the hero generation as in his language, but really it's just like, who are the people who are the midlifers at the turn at that fourth turning into that new future. And something that's so interesting when we look at these historical examples, I, I take this, so this is just me as a symbol of optimism here. The generation who is going through the midlife crisis now is largely made up of the generation who helped herald in this new media that's contributed to a lot of these problems. And I can't help but think and wonder that the midlife crisis crises that are occurring across this generation with so many things that were like, Facebook is cool, Twitter and now X and all these things are cool. And we learned how to live as adults in these. This generation is now dealing with both children and parents and other people. And they're like, crap, some of this stuff is not doing what we wanted it to do. And they're going to mature into the 50 and 60 year olds. As we move the rest of the way through this cycle who go, we thought we understood this and we didn't understand this. I think that coming home to roost in the midlife crises That are happening right now is possibly one of the best corrective mechanisms for what we're about to go through in whatever the end of this turning looks like
2: i agree with that matt and i and i think we can think of it in a couple of different ways i think a lot of people are realizing that their job is not their identity yes That that they are more than their job that their job does not define them and frankly i want to go farther than that we can talk about this later your political party doesn't define you either it really doesn't i will say though that i i'll take some they find this to be a i'll call it a weakness of generational theory because it, it ascribes people to these not hard and fast but pretty distinct groupings based on age and delight I mean, I feel like I had my midlife crisis when I was 28. You know, I, mean, I, I think everyone kind of goes through their questioning of, is that all there
1: is? We're not subjecting a Jungian analysis for the sake no, of this well, podcast.
0: I
2: appreciate that. I appreciate but that. Continue. No, no. Please continue. Like at 28. So go ahead. Give us yeah, the, yeah, you yeah. Know, the, the, the... It's not about me being 28. I, my <laughs> point is that is that I don't think it's... I think it can be unhelpful to say, oh, you know, the boomers, the millennials. I think it can be a useful thing, but my point here is that what you're saying, Matt, applies to us regardless of what age, one hundred, regardless of the generation. That's my point, right? That that when we talk about what, how do we live our lives? It's not how do I live my life as a boomer or a millennial or a you know Gen Zer. It's how do I live my life as a thinking, feeling, human being, regardless of age. So I, I, we're on exactly the same track. I I just don't, and this is an issue I have with generational theory. I, I think it can become a crunch to say, oh, it's that group over there. That's the problem. And they need to get their act together. And you, you see this with every group of people, So, you know, the bank says, okay, we're not, we're not going to let, if you're under 25, you can't vote. Right I mean, come on, give me a break, or, oh, it's you know, on those it's like it's the boomers. It's all their fight it's it's all of us the the
1: crutch inside of it, and I think that that's I agree. I think this is one of the I don't want to say missing components, but it's in there, but I actually like I went into the appendix not long ago in the new fourth training book, and I was yeah. like, you know, young, young gets his fair share of mentions, but a critical part of like that midlife crisis is the move. From, um, magical, I, mean, I might get this wrong, magical thinking to heroic thinking to realistic thinking. And when we start labeling, we open ourselves up to that widening gyre. We start lo- lining ourselves up to go, okay, boomer, okay, trophy kid and all the crap. But when we start to understand like all that move away from, because we can have people from every corner who have the gift of young is saying like, you can mature past that part but lots of people get stuck. There's lots of adults still stuck with magical thinking. There's lots of adults still stuck with heroic thinking. And there's the occasional 28 year old who's figured out his way into realism. And it's, it's finding those people because realistic thinking back to your point is when you've realized that, Oh no, my job doesn't actually define me. Like it's defined by these relationships around me. And then those are the people we have to figure out how to connect. It feels like
2: hundred percent.
3: Yeah. And I think that's the, that's kind of where we wanted to go next is like, no matter what's going on around us, I feel like that those relationships, that pack, as you call it, we surround ourselves with is a huge part of our positivity as human beings. And it's a huge part of if we are into some ugly times, it's a huge part of how we get through that. And so I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how we find those people. You know, it's very hard these days. I was mentioning in our last episode, like it's hard on, you know, in georgia when i saw a lot of people on the right side and in, or and in connecticut when i saw a lot of people on the left side it's hard to have conversations about these things because it immediately triggers people so i'm just wondering how, how do we find that pack what are what are your tips in terms of how we can find that group of people that helps us in a tough period like this
2: uh, twofold right uh, the first is to and this i think this is the most important one is that when we, when we meet someone, we all have projections of ourselves. I mean, and what I mean, so it's a surface, it's a, a barrier between who we are, who I am, Ben Hunt, and who you are, Jack Forian. Right? And, and we all put these things up and often, at least I find with, particularly with men, right, um, over a certain age, that projection is, this is my job, this is who I am, and you interact with that, right? If you meet somebody for the first time, you're interacting with that projection. Uh, Depending on the context, it could be, oh, I'm interacting with this person because of the politics, I'm interacting with this person because of you know, one, one, one way of overcoming these barriers you, you often see is that you're in college, you don't, you make friends on the basis of, oh, I'm sharing this class, this interest, or I'm at the same party, or there's, there's some shared interest. So it's, it's much more amorphous and it's easier, I think, to break through to who that real person is. So you make friends at college. I think similarly, again, you see this kind of in people with young kids, they make friends through their children and school events, right? Where the, where the projection, the place where you meet is not on the basis of what's your job or what's your political party. Because when they say, Hey, your kid and my kid, where they're, they're both in Ms. Jung's class. And so you make a connection that way. So I think that the key to all of this is to try to find ways to make connections with what I mean by like-minded people. And that could be, oh, we've got kids the same age. That could be, oh, we have a shared interest in bowling or woodworking or crocheting. Right?
1: Shout out, bowling.
2: <laughs> a shout out to bowling. Absolutely. <laughs> so there's, there's that, but, and, and I'll go farther. Here are the shared interests that I think are totally non-conducive to making a true connection. And that's if the projection or the point of contact is work and politics. I think religion used to be one of those, right? So you don't talk about, you know, those three things, you know, you know, religion and politics. Work can be an icebreaker. That's what I use all the time, you know, tell me about what you do. And I'm actually seriously interested. Um, but I think that's like most people, when you ask them what their conversation, cause they want to tell you what they do because they see their identity as being inextricably intertwined with what they do for work. I think what we're increasingly seeing over the last five years, 10 years, 15 years. And I think what makes actually our world very different from the 1930s, I think, is that more and more people are seeing their identity formed by their politics. And this is absolutely intentional by the political parties. It's also intentional by the corporation you work for. you You work for Google. You're proud you work for Google. Google wants you to think of you're part of the Google family, right? That this is your identity. Say with a political party. And it's not because they care about you intrinsically. It's because they care about you as a means to an end. This is the defining difference between a pack, friendships, connections that are meaningful in overcoming the widening gyre and connections that are not. You have to be connected with people who do not see you as a means to an end. If you're dealing with people on an instrumental basis, what can you do for me? They are going to be dealing with you in the same way. What can you do for them? When you deal with people in an instrumental, on a transactional basis, That's a relationship and you can have it and we've all got them, but those do not overcome the widening gyre. In the worst case, particularly in the political sense, they exacerbate it. So that a little long winded, but I think it's an important answer. What we're looking for are connections that are not transactional, that are not instrumental. Where you are dealing with first someone as an end in themselves and you insist that they treat you the same way. But parts part is really important. You insist that they treat you the same way, not as a means to an end.
3: This thing you said about the wall is something like I would definitely criticize myself for is like, it's, I, th- I feel like in the world we live in today, it's harder and harder to, you have this wall between what you want to say and then this protection layer that sits there that prevents you from saying it, because so many things, more and more things are getting on the list of, well, you can't talk about that or you can't talk about that. Or even when, you know, obviously I have a business and when I post on Twitter, like you read the thing five times just to make sure there's nothing that's going to be like attacked in there. It's, it'd it be, I think it's harder and harder. I mean, I don't know if this is true relative to history, but I, I feel like personally for me, it has been harder and harder to deal with that.
2: Well, well, here's the hard part, Jack. And you push out what he, what he said, Twitter, right? Twitter is forever. Twitter's prep. And and I I really mean that. What you write down, what you, when you send that post button, man, it's gone. And it's not going to get erased. It doesn't go away. It's not like an individual conversation. I know our human brains are actually quite forgiving and we'll have a conversation with someone and over the years, you know, it'll, that the edges get a little frayed in terms of, you know, maybe yeah. said the wrong thing. I'm sorry. I apologize to the other person, the person who hears it. It's always going to be the wrong thing you said, but it, it softens over time. Nothing softens in social media over time. It doesn't soften. And we're, 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 we're in an age where both the sensitivity of people who see you transactionally to you saying the wrong thing, the the we all have to go through the presupposition that we meet someone that they're more likely to be seeing us instrumentally than as a human being. No, it's exactly right, Jack. that that whether it's in our spoken, written word, or in, even when we meet individual someone individually, we. I find myself withdrawing and not putting myself out there. And it it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tragedy.
1: Are you guys familiar with, do you know, Michael Bungay Stanier? Has he crossed into We're your not, lives not. or spheres? Yeah. So have you ever, so Michael Bungay Stanier, fantastic coaching, stuff like that. Uh, think of him almost like, like a coach's Seth Godin. He's, he's on that level. He's got this thing called the best possible relationship. So just, this is, this is worth saying in this context, I, I wrote this down the, um, so the, when you commit to a best possible relationship, you commit to intentionally designing and managing intentionally designing and managing the way you work with people rather than just accepting what happens. And I think he invokes Esther Perel. He says, love is a verb and he adds, so stop leaving it to chance. So we intentionally design and manage the way we work with people rather than just accepting what happens. And that we do that to create relationships that are safe, vital, and repairable. Yep. And, and this is the really important part where well, we're doing this, because this is transactional versus relation relational. It's safe, meaning we help create psychological safety to discuss uh, anything that's appropriate to discuss. Don't put it in stone. Maybe like write this down in something that can wash away. Uh, It's vital, meaning it's an important relationship. So we're treating the others as vital and the relationship as vital to our, our living selves. We don't want to kill it off. And then that repairable part, which I think that's one of the hardest ones right now for
2: so many people. I want to focus on that. Yeah. Please let's, let's talk uh, about what that uh, means. Because there's, I mean, what you just quoted it. It resonates, right? But what I want to provide is actually some, again, political science. Uh, but please, but support for that because the best. And this isn't just from political science, but the, the best work in game theory today, I think, comes from linguistics and it comes from evolutionary biology. And we focus on the evolutionary biology part. So the question is: there's an adaptation. let say it's a social adaptation for cooperating within a larger population that doesn't cooperate with each other. Your question initially, Jack, how do the cooperators find each other? And then the language, how do they stay together? Because what's absolutely right is that if cooperators can find each other and stick together. If they can repair their relationships, man, across like, you know, random ways in which relationships break apart, they as a group can absolutely thrive. And, um, you know, an evolutionary biology sense, that group becomes larger over time so that you end up with a society that's just more cooperative and better for more people. So. How do you do that? And, and they there are a lot of kind of, they do these sort of tournaments with very simple applications of this called prisoner's dilemma, repeat game stuff. And they run tournaments. What's the strategy for when you meet someone and then you have to do interactions with them? Did you cooperate with them? If you both cooperate, you're both better off. But if you cooperate and they defect, they punch you, they get a much larger reward and you get the sucker payoff. You get nothing. So, you know, the equilibrium, the balancing point of a single play prisoner's dilemma is always neither side cooperates, but that's not the real world. We live in a world where we, we interact with the people and some of the same people over and over and over again. How can we find those who are willing to cooperate? How can we forgive those who maybe punch us once, but could learn to cooperate? How do we do that? And that the the, the most successful strategy in these repeat play prisoners lovo tournaments where your different strategies are competing against each other, is one that a strategy that is willing to take an L, to take the L, right? You start off saying. Here I am, I believe in myself, if you're going to punch me in the nose, all right, go ahead and punch me in the nose. But I am putting myself out there for a cooperative outcome. And, you know, you'll find other people say, no, I'll cooperate with you. And then you say, wait, we're cooperating. We're together. Now you also find somebody might just say, okay, you cooperate, but bam, right in the nose, I'll take the sucker you. And at that point, it's like, all right. You had your chance for us to have a relationship again, I'm still available to cooperate, but I'm only going to cooperate if you leave yourself open first to take the out. right? So it's, it's, it's forgiving, but it's not a patsy, right? That's it. You forgive, but you don't tolerate those who demonstrate an unwillingness to forgive you. That
1: middle yeah. point that like the safe, vital repairable, like the vital piece refers to the vitality of the relationship from both sides. And if I sense you want to kill me, then that needs to be the boundary that we walk. Like one of us, where we both defect and walk away from. Yeah. But if we can both safe. say, yeah, like what, cause it's not safe and therefore not worthy of repair.
2: Forgiving, but not a fancy. I, I that, that's the general strategy. And I think it's encapsulated in much you know, better words than what you said, but, 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 but that's, that, that, that's the strategy and that's what now, the question I was dealing with earlier is how do we, how do we put ourselves in a situation where we have, let's say a target rich environment for yeah. cooperative relationships. And, and I, and I think that that almost never comes. And if, if we're approaching it from my identity is my politics, I think it's difficult for it to happen if your identity is that of your job, but I think it's much more available if your identity is, uh, this is what I care about. This is what I care about. How do you think that love? So take us, I want to read this
1: because that part about like the bottom up mentality, I think is really important here. And I want to read this. This came from Matthew P in the, in our, the Epsilon theory forums, which we encourage you to come join us in, uh, solving big problems from the bottom up being additive to society through make protect, teach and ultimately finding and supporting your pack with clear eyes and full hearts, which is the opposite of having head in the sand or blindly following a political herd. And it takes tremendous courage. That bottom up mentality this this whole idea of make protect, teach, not because our identity uh, orders us to do so in some uh, monotonous automaton way, but like how do you think about the the bottom up mentality that's essential to the core of our being to do this
2: is recognizing the innate humanness of the person you're having a conversation with and allowing yourself to be open, showing them your humanness, showing them you're a human being, see if how they respond, if they respond by Maga. Maga this or woke that and it's like, okay, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not disliking you. But I, I, I'm not, and I, I may have to engage with you from business or some sort of transactional relationship. That's great. But we're not friends. Now you may come to me later and you may open up and say, well, I really care. I, I want to have a conversation about my kids or my family or something in Cuba. And then you respond to that by again, opening yourself up. So you're forgiving. But you're not a patsy, right? You're not going to keep putting yourself out there and opening yourself up to the person who just keeps popping your nose with, uh, you know, Trump or, ah, uh, you know, hate Trump, right? Now, when I say you step back, it doesn't mean that you retreat into the other side. I, I, I mean, we all have relationships like this. We all have them in our own families, where somebody is way over, we call it past the event horizon, they've been sucked in by the uh, one or the other political party, or maybe they've been sucked in by their job, right? They identified, I, uh, you know, who am I? I'm a lawyer. And it's like, okay, but really, that's not really who you are. <laughs> right? It's not really who you are. We can't, I, when I say to step back, I don't mean to write them off. And when I say step back, I don't mean to say, treat them as less than the human being that they are. The flip side of that is that once my does open themselves up to you and deal with you as a human being, they may have politics, they may have a job that is not yours that is very different from you. And what is so crucial is to allow yourself to connect with a human being, even if, if you have a shared sense of identity and what's important to you, to not let differences in politics or class or job define the relationship. So both of those things are really bored, right? And and I, and I, you know, I talk a big game and, and, but we all are human in the sense that if somebody really thinks something politically, something you think is terrible, you know, I don't like that and I can argue with that person and I will, but you know, I'll of my own politics. I, I think Trump is not qualified to be president. I would never vote for him. I think he's a disaster as a president and he, he, that he breaks us, but I don't hate people who vote for Trump. I really don't, but a lot of people do. And that makes me really sad. And, and it, this is what I mean by going over that event horizon. It's staying in the human world, the now, um without being a patsy, with still being forgiving and without hate. Anyway, it's a tall order. I fail as often as I succeed, but that's, that is what I think is required to navigate our way through.
3: I think your, your point on saying your opinion about Trump or about anything is so important because I think that's something I need to work on a lot. Like you can either go through this world. Being somebody who's constantly thinking about, well, what what comes out of my mouth next could be problematic. Or you can surround yourself with people, and who understand that all of us are going to say dumb things. All of us are going to say things that might be contentious at times in terms of their what they believe. You know, and and if the people that understand that are the people you want to be around. But like more and more in our society, and and even with people who are our friends, certain of these things, you know, if they come out of your mouth, it, it becomes a, a source of conflict. And you know, I think that's I think what you're talking about is so important because the version of yourself where you're just holding everything back is far,
2: far worse than the version that says
3: what you think, but sometimes says something that's dumb.
2: Well, in the middle talking about the very first, well, the secret the secret. This yeah, you know, okay. it is. It's it's the secret recipe for success, both for uh corporations involved in technology, media and politics, as well as the big political parties. Their secret recipe is engage. It's not affiliation. It's not do I have a Twitter account, but it's not do I have a thread account. I, I've got both. I have engagement with Twitter. I am valuable to Twitter. I am not valuable to Meta because I don't use Threads. Right. Engagement is it. It's the same in politics. It's not are you loosely affiliated? Are you engaged? So that you will show up to vote, so that you will give money to their candidates. It's engagement. Right? So, underlying everything that I'm talking about is to not give your engagement to a political party. You can favor one or you vote for whoever you think is the best candidate. I get it. right? But in the same way that you're not defined by what you do for a living, you're not defined by who you vote for or what political party or policies you favor. The intention is to get you though, to engage and to define yourself through that. Every day we, we all receive dozens, hundreds of messages from corporations, from local parties, demanding that we engage with them. And remember, a rage engagement is just as positive as a mirror or a pleasant engagement. We, uh, We live in an engagement economy, political economy and money economy. And that's what is, you know, secretly wearing away at all of our brains and making it so much more difficult to have these forgiving yet not patsy relationships with other beings. So I want to ask you, part of what
3: you've talked about in terms of being able to engage on challenging issues is who you surround yourself with. And we've talked about that a lot. The other part is how we go about doing it. And obviously, if I come in, the, if I come, you know, guns blazing, you know, Biden is a catastrophe or Trump is a catastrophe, that's not going to go well. But do you, do you have any thoughts on on how we can better do that? You know, once we've surrounded ourselves with good quality people, how can we have you know better conversations around these issues?
2: I don't know, I don't know because because I, at the same time, I'm I'm not suggesting to anyone to say what they think, right? I I think I think Biden's awful, and I think Trump is a catastrophe. <laughs> right That's what I think, and. That doesn't, you can disagree, you can flip that around, you can have very different end, and I don't think you're a bad person. We just, we disagree. Right? I, I have, I have so much more political engagement in me than who I freaking vote for. I, I think I said this on the last episode, but your vote is the most minute part of your political participation as a citizen. It's. It really doesn't matter. I mean, even if you live in a tight, I mean, your you're zone. this is a whole other situation. It, it, it does not matter. What your vote is, is an expression of your identity. And it's a good one. It's an important one. I'm all for it. I do. <laughs> I vote. I love voting. And, but it's my political participation is so much more what the three of us are doing right now, talking about how we live together as citizens, this, this video podcast, this is political participation, listening to it and thinking about it. That's political participation. It's not your vote. It's Can we,
1: can we call this, can we call this like, this is, should be the new ratioed. It should be your level of participation versus like votes. And you should be ratioed in the sense of how much you do, how much do you politically participate, not how many votes you cast
2: i I love that and and I see so much political participation happening in this world that people don't mm. think of as political participation and it's that's a great,
1: great point
2: yeah right it's 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 oh, I'm going to you know start an after school program for x, y, Z. Or, uh, oh, I'm going to, you know, do any sort of, it doesn't have to be philanthropy. Right. It could be a, I'm going to, you know, build a self-sustaining thing. It's not maximizing profits, but it's capitalist to build this, you know, charter school or something like that. And I'm telling you that's political participation. It absolutely is. And it's the most important political participation. Compared to giving money to a national candidate who sees you as fodder and feed? Oh, come on. You know, it's not that the the national votes don't matter. I know they matter. What matters so much more for our own personal identity and how we make our way through this world and the people we want to be is what we do. Not what we do once every four years to, you know, in, in, the, in the vote we take. Anyway, I feel I feel strongly about this.
3: Just one more. I, I know we have to get into our, our mailbag section here because uh, we've got some really great questions. Uh, I want to ask you about this idea of viewing the other side as evil. You know, that's something that has become an issue everywhere. I was just going to read a quick, you know, we had... One of the things I've noticed, and I've mentioned this in other episodes, is shifting from doing an investing podcast, which I do on the other side, to a political podcast. Is the comments tend to be a little bit more uh, charged on the uh, on yeah. the political side than they were? I guess is a good way to put it. But um, we, we got
2: one comment: "Investors is- are evil." Evil. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, we it, it hasn't worked out for us very well in the past uh, <laughs> in the past decade. That that certainly is true. Um, So, yeah, we got a comment. Biden is demonstrably a terrible president. Trump is demonstrably a better president in spite of the slander from the media. Trump wants to make America great again. Biden wants to make feudalism great again. And yes, leftism is evil. Uh, There's a little bit more to it, but I'm just I'm curious about like you see that a lot. Like I saw that on Twitter the other day. I saw somebody saying basically, you know, Trump is a scumbag and anybody who supports Trump is a scumbag. So, again, that connection we're trying not to make of the candidate to the people who support the candidate. You know, separating those things out, I think, is so important. So, how can we do a better job of not seeing that other side
2: as evil? Well, by disengaging with our political parties, and and it's by it it is literally that by by creating critical distance and saying no, I'm not going to listen to you. That means not listening to, well, you know, Trump and his MAGA speeches. It means not listening to Joe Biden. I still remember, you know, I'm old enough to remember in Philadelphia. When Biden gives the speech saying, well, maybe it's not all Republicans, but it's MAGA Republicans that, you know, are a threat to the country and want to destroy the country, maybe a break. It's, this is the type of speech, political speech that is weaponized and, and intentionally driven to make. That person whose comments you read, think get it that way. And, and it's, and I'm not going to change their mind. And this, this is, we we're talking about, this is, can lead to kind of a sense of hopelessness that, you know, we're not going to change this. You're not going to change that guy's mind. You're not going to change the true believers, you know, on the, on the, the Biden side either, you're, you're just not, uh, what we have to figure out is. How do we avoid becoming? How do we avoid losing our farts? Going over that event horizon into the black hole of red tribe with blue tribes. And 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 it and it's and it's not easy. It's impossible if you're alone. It's I think only possible. When you make these connections, like we're talking about earlier, of people who will see you as a human being, regardless of what your views are on politics or or, or policies of any sort, so long as you do the same with them and you don't define yourself in those terms, it's absolutely a two-way street, it's reciprocal, but if you can find that relationship you stick together, and, it, and it, I find that that is, as with anything we humans do, the secret you find like-minded people, you disengage from those who would do you ill.
3: One of the uh, one of the things that's been helpful for me is coming from the world of investing. If, in investing, if you get stuck with one opinion and you will not move that opinion, you're dead. Basically, you know you have to be able to evolve. You have to be able to look at the other side and you know, that was an example, like 10 years ago, you were talking about narrative. I was talking about value investing. You were right. I was wrong. Like, but my ability to embrace what you were talking about was, was really important. And I think the same thing with politics. Like I try to say, if there's a candidate, I think is just awful. I try to say, well, what would somebody who vote for votes for them? What might they find as a reason to vote for them? I try to come up with some logic, you know, maybe they have a specific social issue. They're a really strong believer in, and maybe that trumps all the other issues. And if you can kind of put yourself in their shoes and you can understand why they support them, to me, that's better at least to be able to have a normal conversation and not to view them as evil or not to view them as someone who's not informed properly, but understand where they're coming from.
2: Well, I totally agree with that last part, right? So, I, I, I mean, we're so far past changing people's minds. And, and anytime times people's talking about, oh, we need to educate somebody. It's like, oh my God, are you kidding me? I, yeah, I, yeah. like I want to be educated by someone, right? And come, I don't, no one wants to be educated. What are not? It's just this most elitist bullshit thing, right? To say we're going to, well, we just need, they just need to, they just need to understand. Let's just explain it to them a little bit better. Right. Oh, yeah. No, no. What I find is that in conversations, I just try to avoid, you know, if somebody leads with that, that's a defection. Right. And then we're talking about cooperating to defect him. I mean, somebody's going to lead with something that they know as well is, you know, they're, they're trying to sniff you out. Are you on the same tribe as I am? And it's like, I, I'm just not going to play the game. I'm just not going to play the game. And and that's, that's the part of not being a patsy. I'm not going to get engaged with them to have that. Oh, ah, no, it's like. I'd like to, we can talk about something else. If we can talk about something human, then that leaves an avenue to maybe making a human connection. Uh, I I just, I'm so, that's why I, maybe that's why I just don't go to, I don't get out much anymore because I don't, I, I would, I would rather stay at home than engage on the politics and the, on the politics.
1: There was another comment that came from the forum from, from Rob H., at the Epsilon Theory Forum. And I I think it echoes kind of what you're saying. It's like the ability to simmer without boiling over. And it was that Ben had the important point that we do our best not to hate those who vote opposite from us, to accept that most are voting with good intentions. I need to keep this top of mind as a simmering anger at both sides increasingly becomes my default. And I mean, that's such a rich metaphor. I just love the simmer, but it's, like in, in interactions, is it just, is it the, the, conscious awareness? Like this is how high I turn up the pot on my stove to, uh, not boil over, but like, accept that simmer is just part of the world today.
2: Yeah. It's pretty hot out there. Right. I mean, it's, it seems it's, it's pretty, and, and it's, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Now is the time to find people who are not so engaged in politics that they can't see people beyond their politics and, um, without being a patsy, without kind of just letting yourself open to, um, to go into, to to not speaking your own mind, because that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you tamp down, you have political views or any views at all. I'm saying it's crucial to find other people with whom you can have a political conversation without it infecting every aspect of your relationship. So I think we can,
3: uh, we can shift over to the mailbag here because we had some, some really great questions in the forum. Um, and, And the first one was one I actually had when we were going through the episode as well, which is this idea of, can there be good political entrepreneurs? So I was thinking about this, like if we had a upstart candidate who wants to use these entrepreneurial tactics, but doesn't want to use them in, in some of the negative ways we, we talked about in previous episodes. And I mean, can that be done? I used to think, it could,
2: right. And, and, I, and I, this is going to sound egotistical and it was right. It was like, okay, you're a student of narrative, and you know, you, you can see the stories and the why don't you weaponize some narratives, but do it for good. <laughs> right, I mean, I, I mean, it, it's it. and This is one of the oldest stories, right? Is that you think, oh, I'm going to get this power or this ring or this, you know, this MacGuffin that lots of other people are going after, but I'm going to use the power for good. And we know how that story ends. We know how that story ends, and and so I. I have wrestled with that personally. I think every, to, to Matt's point earlier, it's not just people vote with good intentions. I think people get involved in politics mostly for good intentions. They mean well, and if they've got a talent for it and they find that there's a path for it, they think, well, yeah, let me do it. Because think of all the good I'm going to do. Yeah. Power corrupts. That's 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 my view. I I don't think there is a top-down solution that does not inherently become corrupted in the pursuit of preserving power, as opposed to using power to do good. Sorry, that probably wasn't the answer you wanted. No, (laughs) well, it's the true answer, which is which is the one we do want. Can I admit the answer? Right, because i I have a very different view for local political action, like running for town select person, right, or you know running you know, running for a local board there those positions are almost always service positions. I am all for service positions. My view though, is that once you get beyond truly local government it becomes an exercise in ego and the corruption of power as opposed to service so i just want to make that whole amendment so on
3: the uh the next comment we got related to this better versus different thing which was actually very eye-opening for me when matt uh came up with it um in the episode and tanya and rob were both talking about it in the forum and uh, just to highlight some of it, the, the better versus different message struck me home with me, and she was most taken by the examples which showed the bimodal nature required to get ahead in the current widening gyre. So I know, Matt, you wanted to add a little bit more to that uh, on that whole better versus different versus what you saw in the forums.
1: So first off, complete respect to Christopher Lockhead for coining that term and forever etching it in my brain. But I, I think, and he brought it from marketing, and I think it's useful in all marketing, all messaging, political, product, or otherwise. Whenever someone is putting a comparison in front of your eyes. It's this idea that better is forcing the comparison and different is forcing a choice. And understanding that framing in the presentation, in the positioning, to use another marketing term, is the critical part. When we think about in politics, it's this idea of, I said it in the last one, like you, you win in the wings and then the center's for the king. You move back to the middle. And that's because you have to be different to start. You have to force force, foist the comparison upon the audience. But then once you get to the middle, you want to reduce everything to a comparison of better because you want to just make it like, oh, this is the, the, the marginal difference. So better and different, think about how everything is being messaged to you in those framings. And then just remember that better is forcing a comparison apples to apples, apples to oranges or whatever they're distorting it with. And different is forcing a choice saying, you know, you don't want to eat that apple. You want to come bowling with us today. <laughs> it's so important when we think about the framing of political messages as they're being crammed down our throats, heading into an election year in particular.
2: As important as it is in thinking about the framing nationally, right? It's is as important to think about the framing personally.
1: If 100%. I mean,
2: Right. Because I, what I found over the years is I want to be different. Yes, I want to be better at my job. And so, but, but I also have found it necessary to take a step back and a step to the side to, to see the world differently, uh, where I'm not defining myself in terms of my job, but I'm defining myself in terms of, making and protecting and teaching and, and the uh, intrinsic enjoyment I get from my Pat. So yes, that I go on. no that, that idea is like
1: to choose the identity to be different because that is the way you preserve choice. If you just want to be, be better, you're choosing comparisons. If you want to be different, you're choosing to re, to retain choice. That's, that's actually a beautiful reframe, but nicely done.
3: So uh, the next one was also a question I had. I mean, we should probably replace me with some of these uh, Epsilon Theory posters because they have, they have much better questions yep. than I do. But um, this, the, the question was around, can centrists still win, the politi- win a national election? You know, we know they're not going to win the primaries, but if somehow they found, out, they found their way out of the primaries, to me, just thinking about it without understanding this, I would think, you know, if a very, you know, right or left wing person comes out of the primary of one primary and a centrist comes out of the other the centrist would have a good chance because they would capture those people in the middle. But I think that's probably not right. So I'm wondering Hmm. if you could talk about this idea of can centrist still win a national election?
2: Yeah, sure. Sure. And I I know this is going to come to a shock to a lot of people, but Joe Biden is a centrist. Sorry, but he is. Right. And, And that's what happened in the Democratic primary this time around, where, you know, it was going to be Bernie and then come South Carolina and you have a concerted action by Warren and then Mayor Pete and everyone else to step aside, consolidate behind Biden to beat Bernie because they were really concerned that Bernie wouldn't be able to beat Trump. I- so it, it, you know, parties do this all the time and I think that sa- my view, sadly, we have a system today where again, the rules have changed such that you're not going to get the incumbent president of whichever party to be challenged. So Biden is set and on um, the. Republican side, the rules have changed so that you're not going to get a consolidation to stop Trump as the candidate. And if I were a Republican, if I were a partisan, if I was a partisan Republican, I'd be very disappointed of that in the same way that partisan Democrats were very disappointed and couldn't imagine the idea of running Bernie Sanders in the last election cycle, because I think what happens with Trump as another national candidate is he gets snatched again. So, you you know, I, I think that as a partisan Republican, I'm very disappointed that we don't have a set of candidates and structural rules that would allow us to focus on anyone else, but Trump as the candidate, I, I understand if you're partisan Republicanism is not your thing. If Trumpism is your thing, you think I'm nuts. And similarly, you know, lots of people could think I'm nuts. But I'm telling you, it's the same dynamic today on the Republican side as it was in 2020 on the Democratic side. They were able to come by the, you know, Bernie didn't have the same power base that Trump did. And so they were able to knock him out and run a more centrist candidate, which is Joe Biden. Is, is part
3: of the issue with centrist winning that the people, the strong people in the polls turn out a lot more than the people in the middle? I mean, is, is that an issue more so than it was in the past?
2: The issue with centrist candidates not winning is that Bernie Sanders was going to win that primary if the other candidates didn't drop out in favor of Joe Biden. That's the, that's the issue, right? It's, it's not that a centrist candidate can't win the general election. It's that a centrist candidate can't become the candidate in a general election with a bimodally distributed electoral base in the absence of breaking, changing the rules to prevent that non-centrist candidate like a Bernie from winning the candidates. Bernie was going to win that.
3: Um, Just just a couple more, but I know we have to wrap up here on time. There are... Lawrence was asking about the changing positions of parties. And he he'd kind of pointed out, you know, I won't read the whole thing, but from back in the day of Bill Clinton, there was, you know, a pretty strong border policy from the Democratic Party um, that, that was in this thing he sent. And, and I know in the world of Trump, I mean, some of the positions of the Republican Party have changed pretty significantly. So do you, do you have any thoughts on that and sort of the, the evolving positions of these parties over time?
2: Yeah, this is what this is a corollary to what was describing about how You can measure polarization by looking at the political parties and looking for the legislation that they vote for. Is, is legislation, is it proposed? Does it get through committee to actually come up for a vote in the first place? Uh, and, and if so, is there overlap between the parties on their voting and on all of these policies? And so, so whether it's on, from a policy perspective. Because it wasn't just border security and immigration, it was also on welfare. Oh my God. It was also on uh, cutting taxes, right? And so fiscal policy, internal border policy, uh, welfare policy, law enforcement by all of these things were much more in the middle and policies would come up and both sides would vote for. So whether it's. Thinking about it in policy terms, whether it's thinking about it in the legislative legislation form, whether it's thinking about it in terms of voting pattern form, all of these things have moved farther and farther apart. It's all part of the wide
3: I think that's probably a good one. I, I had one more myself I was going to ask, but uh, I think we should focus on the forum people for now and I'll, I'll slip mine into a future episode. But uh, I think we're, we're going to test Matt's elite summarizing skills right now. We, we've, we've covered a lot in this episode.
1: We covered, we covered a lot, but we got, we got notes, baby. So, all right. So best attempt at summarizing this episode, keep the emails coming, keep the comments coming, the forum, uh, find us on our socials. It's all in the comments. I have a feeling we have many more optimism and mailbag episodes to come with this. So here's the summary, uh, self-interested people. Uh, the self-interest is what pushes us beyond our common ground, even though the people prefer the common ground. So that, that self-interest is the same thing that's going to push us apart as be the thing that can tie us back together. And that, that lays into our, the job does not define you and making sure you understand your identity is not defined by that thing that you have a choice. And I think this is going to keep coming up, over and over again, in these notes, mm-hmm. our identity is not defined by politics and you brought up the point ben of sort of transactional versus relational where transactional is what contributes to the widening gyre it's using people as instruments versus relational which is where we're tightening we're finding we're using our self-interest to actually find the middle ground to find our pack to be cooperative to play an infinite game we want to i love this expression forgive but don't be a patsy The best possible relationship is one that's safe, vital, and repairable. And what's critical there is that means to be repairable, to be vital, to be safe, we have to, on both sides, be willing to forgive. But at the same time, we can't be a patsy because then we get steamrolled over and we end up right back where we started. The secret recipe to success is always engagement. It's who shows up and why. So you don't want to give your engagement towards others in exchange for your identity. I'm thinking of, there's that great thing with the Oracle of Delphi on the outside. Everybody knows it says, know thyself. But on the inside, when you walk through, it says thou art. Know yourself, but know who you are from the inside. The ratio of your political participation to who you vote for, you gotta be thinking of this. Your actions are more important than their labels. Again, your actions, more important than their labels. And finally, I, I, I just love that the idea of simmer, but don't boil over. Power corrupts. And so the answer to simmering without boiling over only comes through service. And service, Ben, I love the way you said it. It's instead of choosing better, choose to be different because that's what preserves your ability to choose. And that's the most important thing. Jack, you brought it up several times about your identity actually evolves over time. It's not hard, fixed, and brittle. And if I can invoke one music reference for this episode I, I want to invoke the poet philosopher perhaps you've heard of him coolio uh, i'll self-censor on this but i believe the quote was if you can't take the heat get the expletive out the kitchen we on a mission and i'm pretty sure gentlemen we're on a mission this is breaking news thanks for joining us
0: thanks for tuning in be sure to like and subscribe wherever you're watching breaking news so more people can find our show If you know another clear-eyed and full-hearted individual, why not share this episode with them too? Like we said at the top, the media is making us tick and it's our job to talk. Follow the headlines at fiatnews.com. Follow Ben at epsilontheory.com and at epsilontheory on Twitter. Follow Jack at validiacapital.com and at practicalquant on Twitter. Follow Matt at sunpointinvestments.com cultishcreative.com and at cultishcreative on Twitter. Ben Hunt is the co-founder and CIO of Second Foundation Partners. Jack Forehand is a principal at Validia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is managing director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Second Foundation Partners, Validia Capital, or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of Second Foundation Partners, Validia Capital, or Sunpoint Investments. Nothing in this podcast is investment advice.